Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith. We're going through the book of Revelation as we have been. This um, chapter, Revelation chapter 11, is an interesting chapter um, in the whole entire book of Revelation. Um, You may be thinking, why is this relevant to today's message or why is this relevant to my life today? What you will actually find is that this message in the book of Revelation is actually extremely pressing um, in our society today. History has a tendency to repeat itself, doesn't it? And what we're going to be looking at and studying today is something that we see rapidly being fulfilled in society at large, you know, in the world, in the world in which we live. So before we open the scriptures and before we jump into the, the, the word of God, let's just have a quick prayer. Father in heaven, I just ask and pray that this morning you may speak. May you show yourself, for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Today's message is entitled, A Message in Sackcloth. Um, Here's a picture up on the screen just here. Um, You're probably wondering why on earth would he put that up on the screen. Now, just to give you a bit of context, my nan got that for the baby, and I thought that I would try it on. My nan has a habit of getting me close. She's not here today, I don't think. She always had a habit when I was younger of getting me clothes from the op shop. Nothing, nothing's wrong with that. But she would choose clothes to me that were terrible. And so I had these clothes that would get passed on to me. She would clean out people's homes as well and they would give her old clothes. So I would get all these hand-me-downs. And my mum made me wear them because my nan would ask, why isn't he wearing those clothes? It was embarrassing to wear some of the clothes that she gave me. Some of the kids at school, you know, they'd be wearing their Nikes and, you know, I'd have these hand-me-down sneakers from my nan who gave them to me. And most of the time they didn't fit. They were too tight, they were too big, the clothes were really tacky. Sometimes she even made me clothes, okay? And I haven't got any pictures up on the screen because I'm not going to show you any pictures up on the screen. The clothes are terrible, you know? She would sew them, she, she, she would make things, you know, and I was very grateful. And I just know that our kid is going to have the same. I remember my sister, my sister had this big, long velvet dress um, with like doilies. I think they look, they look like doilies. They probably weren't doilies, but there were doilies around the neck and doilies around the, the, the sleeves and probably doilies around. So right down to your, your, your wrists here, right down to your ankles, you know, nothing was being shown. She probably had gloves as well that she was made. So my nan gave me this for the little one. I think it was three to six months, you know, old. That was the age on it. And I said to Rosie, I bet you I can fit. I bet you I can fit in this. She said, no, you can't. So I had to prove her wrong. Um, We've actually donated that to the op shop as well. My nan doesn't listen to my sermon, so it's all right. But I mean, the point that I want to make here is I wouldn't go out in public like this. I would show this in church, even though that's public, but I wouldn't wear this in public. In the book of Revelation chapter 11, we actually find that God's word is wearing sackcloth. Okay, And that's interesting for God's word because God's word is God's word. It's spoken by him. It's his thoughts made audible and given to humanity. They're precious and they're holy. And yet God's word is wearing sackcloth. It's interesting, isn't it? Because sometimes when we think of God's word, we think of something that's triumphant or victorious, elevated, high and lifted up. But in Revelation chapter 11, we actually find that God's word is wearing sackcloth. Open with me to Revelation chapter 11. 
I want to show you a few texts. I just wanted to get that picture off the screen. Revelation chapter 11 and starting in verse 3, we're going to read down to the end of verse 6. We're going to go through this whole entire chapter or portions of it. And we're going to really pull out what the revelator is sharing with us here. So Revelation chapter 11, verses 3. The scriptures read this. And I will give power to my two witnesses... And they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in, what's that word? Clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the earth, before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. We see two witnesses here in the text, in verse number three. It says there's two witnesses. Verse number four, it says that there are olive trees and lamp stands. The question that we need to ask is, well, what are these two witnesses? I've outlaid it already at the beginning of the sermon that God's word, his message, is in sackcloth. This makes a lot of sense. Uh, keep your finger here in Revelation chapter 11. We're going to decide, or we're going to figure out from Scripture what a witness is. In John chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus says these words. John 5, 39. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders and he's going through his fourfold witness. Number one, he talks about John, the forerunner, the number one witness. Then he speaks of the Father who is testified to him at his baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then he then declares the works that he has done as a witness to his power. And finally, he declares the most powerful witness for his Messiahship, which is the Word of God. In verse 39, it says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life. And these are they that testify of who? They testify of me. The greatest witness of Jesus wasn't John the Baptist who preceded him. It wasn't the miracles that Jesus did. And it wasn't even the voice of God from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am more pleased. The greatest witness to Jesus in his understanding was the Scriptures. The greatest witness for God has always been the Scriptures. That's what he's given to us. And Jesus was the Word made flesh. He was the witness personified. Jesus, you know this text quite well. Jesus is talking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14. And he says, This gospel must go forward as a witness to all nations. It must be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. You know, it's the word that he uses there, as a witness. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, turn with me just a few pages before. Luke 24 and verse 44, Jesus is meeting with his disciples after his resurrection. And as he meets with his disciples after the resurrection, he probably gives them the greatest Bible study that they have ever received. What he does is he begins at the book of Genesis and he goes all the way through to the book of Malachi and he says, that was me, that was me, that was talking about me, that was alluding to me, this overarching theme happened in my life. Do you reckon that would have been an awesome Bible study to be at? Profound Bible study. And the penny just drops for them. Well, I wouldn't say it dropped because in Acts chapter 1, they're just like, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel to us? 
And Jesus is like, um, guys, I'm about to leave and you still don't have it. God is merciful with us, isn't he? And in chapter 24 and verse 44, Jesus says this, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Does Jesus leave any book out of the Old Testament here? The law, the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, minor and major, and the Psalms. He takes all of the Old Testament and he says, they declare me. They're a witness to me. And when Jesus shared that with the disciples, was there any New Testament present? I mean, the New Testament wasn't written for probably 60 or so more years and even more so. But when the New Testament came along, did the early Christians perceive them to be authoritative? They did. They saw them just as inspired as the Old Testament because there are no degrees of inspiration, church. If you are inspired, you are inspired. End of story. So when we come to the book of Revelation and we find that the two witnesses are revealed here, witnessing, declaring, it's none other than the word of God manifested in the law and the prophets, New Testament, Old Testament. God's message, God's word is going forward in what? In sackcloth, and we'll get to that soon. But in Revelation chapter 11, turn to me there again. It's not just the two witnesses that is revealed in the text. It's the lampstand, and it's also the olive trees. Revelation unapologetically borrows from the Old Testament. Time after time after time, majority of Revelation is plagiarized from the Old Testament in a good way. Most of it is actually almost word for word from the Old Testament or alluding to. In order to understand Revelation, you have to understand the Old Testament. And in Zechariah chapter 4, it's actually talking about the olive trees and the lampstands. And it's been spoken to to Zerubbabel. God has a message from Zechariah the prophet to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel doesn't really know what God's message is or what to do. And this is what God says. Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these things are? And I said, No, my Lord. So previously, God comes and gives the message. He gives the message of the lampstands. He gives the message of the olive trees. And he says, So what's this mean? He says, I have no idea. Has anyone ever felt like that when they read the Bible? Has anyone ever felt like that when they read Paul's writings? Yeah? Or some of the minor prophets. What in the world is this talking about? He had no idea. It's not a bad thing to have no idea if it leads you to study more. And then God says this. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Who knows that text? Okay, So we, here we find that the, the lampstands and the olive trees in the beginning, it says, this is the word of the Lord, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. This is what it is. When God's message goes forward, it's not just tangible words on a page. For the word of God is quick or it's living and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. God's words are alive. When God says, let there be light, there was light. God's word is power because God's word is alive. 
not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. I may say something, and my words aren't powerful unless they are infused with the Holy Spirit. Your witness will not be powerful unless it is infused with the Holy Spirit. God brings alive, God brings forth, God speaks life. If God speaks, and it is just in the book of Genesis, why do we think that our witness will be powerful if we just regurgitate that which we've remembered? But we haven't asked for the Holy Spirit. I love what you said, Lee, that you pray for the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. The honor of God's throne is staked for the fulfillment of his word. And what God has promised, God will do. He says, ask for the comforter, ask for the Holy Spirit. When God's word is preached, something supernatural happens. Always does. Even if it's preached in sackcloth. It's pretty cool. So here we find in Revelation chapter 11, we find the word of God. But then it says it's been preached in sackcloth for how long? 1,260 days. Now, we're going to see this as a common theme popping up throughout the book of Revelation. It's even in Daniel. This period of time, 1,260 days. In prophecy, we know quite well that a day in prophecy is a literal A literal year. So 1,260 days now becomes 1,260 years that God's word is in obscurity. It's suppressed. It's persecuted. It's not on the public forefront. Tradition rather has replaced scripture. And we know this all too well. And as Ash said at the beginning of the the worship service, 500 years for the Protestant Reformation. Every single year, they've celebrated the Reformation. Every single hundred years, sorry, they celebrated the Protestant Reformation when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg in Germany. Every single hundred years, they celebrate. 500 years on, there's a celebration that is different to all the other celebrations that have previously happened. It's an ecumenical celebration in the sense that the Reformation was a bit of a misunderstanding. And there's a document you can find on the internet. It's called um, From Conflict to Communion. And it talks about what the compromise was, the compromise between the two parties, the Protestants or the Lutherans, so to speak, and Catholics or Catholicism. And let me just say this. If you read that, it's a very, very interesting document. The compromise mainly is on behalf of the Lutherans or wholly on the part of the Lutherans. 1,260 years of church history of persecution and suppression of the scriptures where God's message was preached in sackcloth. Now, what is sackcloth? If I came to church today dressed in sackcloth and ashes, what would I be communicating? I showed you a picture up on the screen. That wasn't sackcloth, that was Elmo. Okay? If I came dressed in sackcloth and ashes, mourning. You know, um, the prophets, when Israel would reject their message time after time after time, do you know what they used to wear? Sackcloth. So did God have his faithful people throughout this period of persecution and suppression? Yeah. Did they proclaim his word? Yes. What happened to most of them? They were silenced. Either by death or they went missing. Conveniently went missing. So basically we see God's message is being preached in sackcloth. It's being persecuted, but God's word never returns to 
him void. You can shut it up, you can lock it up, you can do away with it, but it always seems to come back. That's just the power of God's word. You can't kill something that is alive from God. And it always manages to pop up here, there, and they try to put out the fires, but the more that they try to put out the fires, the brighter the fires burn. It still goes forward, and it goes forward in sackcloth. I want to show you something really, really cool. Um, what we're looking at today is something called the French Reformation. Who is... Who is... Oh, French Revolution, sorry. French Revolution. Who has heard of the French Revolution before? Okay. I encourage you today, when this sermon is done, if you want to learn more about this, go to the Great Controversy and read the chapter on the French Revolution. A lot of this will be explained. A hundred years before the French Revolution occurred, which is... just before the end of this date just here, okay, when the French Revolution occurred, there were a number of people who were studying the Scriptures. They would come to the Scriptures. The cost of their own lives, by the way, they would study the Scriptures and they would read Revelation chapter 11. This is really cool. And they would read Revelation 11 and say, hmm, two witnesses, this looks like France. Wow. Time prophecy, oh, 1796. 1797, one even said 1798. France is going to go through an upheaval. Isn't that remarkable? I'm going to read you a bit. This is 100 years before it even happened. Since the death of the two witnesses takes place where? In France. And in such a surprising manner, why should there be any hesitation in concluding that this tenth part of the city which shall fall is France? 1685. Now, what is this tenth part of the city which shall fall? In my opinion, we cannot doubt tis France, 1686. And I could show you a number of other quotations like that. But I mean, if I came to church today, this is kind of like Jesus, you know, when he goes to the book of Isaiah, when he stands up and preaches in Luke chapter 4, and he reads through that, that portion of, from Isaiah chapter 61, and he says, this which I have spoken today has been fulfilled in your hearing. Then he went and sat down. If I got up today and I read a scripture and said, this today has been fulfilled in your hearing, what would you think? Man, that guy is you know, so egotistical. You know? Who is he to say that he has you know, the power to authorize that text being fulfilled today? That's what we would think, wouldn't we? We have the benefit today of looking back on history past. And we can see that what God has predicted has happened with just amazing accuracy. I mean, we can go to Daniel chapter 2 and we can see the, the, the metals going from Babylon all the way to Rome. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, feet of iron and clay. And we can look back and say, wow, that was really amazing. Most prophecies are unknown until they have been fulfilled. Is that true? Yeah? When Jesus was born, how many realized that the Messiah had turned up? from studying the prophecies. Hardly any. I mean, the shepherds had a a, a revelation from the angels. Most prophecy is realized afterwards. That's why this is so amazing. A hundred years before this happened, Bible students were coming and studying Scripture and saying, this is going to happen. They were understanding the prophecies before they were fulfilled. These guys were no jokes. These Bible students, they didn't just have a surface-level knowledge of Scripture. They weren't just running around with their concordances saying, oh, we're ignorant to all these scholars, etc., etc. These people had such a great understanding and grasp on Scripture. They believed entirely what they preached and believed, and they could share their faith and defend their faith with such power. They knew what they believed. 
and they weren't ashamed of the message. They weren't ashamed of the message. You know, the thing is, if we are ashamed, church, of the message that we have, here are people who have a part of our message even before our church was born saying that this is going to come to end, the French Revolution is going to begin, the 1,260-year prophecy is is going to end somewhere around the 1790s. We have inherited that as a church. And some people think, well, you know, that's, that's a part and parcel, things that have gone past, we've moved on from that. Well, no, we haven't. Because we have inherited this, not from ourselves, but we have inherited this from those who have gone before us. We are in a great debt to the forerunners. To those who kept the lamp shining in darkness, for those who wore the sackcloth and preached the message of God's good news. Imagine a son who despises his father's inheritance. Who is he really despising? His father. And God has passed truth after truth after truth after truth all the way down to where we are today. If we despise the inheritance and the legacy that we have come from, then we despise he who has given the light and the message to us. Does that make sense? So God has this message for his people. The question I have for you today is this. What would you rather... A friend who tells you only things you want to hear or a friend who's willing to tell you what you need to hear? I mean, it's easy for us to say, yeah, I'd like a friend who would tell me what I need to hear. But what happens when they actually do that? We take offence. Oh, dear, no, don't, don't say that to me. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting. Sometimes we don't like the peace to be unsettled, but God will always tell you what you need to hear. Always. I mean, you look at the prophets. How many of them were liked? John the Baptist, they loved him, didn't they? Oh, Jeremiah, they couldn't get enough of him. (laughs) They couldn't stand their messages. Why? Because God sent the message through the messenger, and the prophet's message will always be despised. It's just the human heart. It's carnal. It doesn't want to receive the things from God. In verse 6 of chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, we, something, we see something pretty cool being alluded to just here. In verse 6 it says, These, talking about the witnesses, have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the day of their prophecy. Does anyone know what Old Testament story is being alluded to there? Shut heaven so that no rain will fall. Elijah. Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, look at this. This is really cool. 1 Kings 17.1. Okay. The scripture says this, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Elijah's word wasn't his word. God had called him to go. And he goes and he speaks the word faithfully. And he says, Ahab, there shall not be rain for this Mount of time. And God's word pronounces the drought, doesn't it? Then you jump to Luke chapter 4 and verse 25. Jesus talking about this exact same thing. Look what he says. Luke 4 verse 25, Jesus says, But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and what? Six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. How many days are in three years and six months? 
1,260. Wow. That's cool, eh? Exactly what we see in Revelation chapter 11. There is a parallel between the persecution of God's people during this period of papal supremacy throughout the Dark Ages and a parallel between what happened to Israel and the time of drought. God's word was shut up, but it went forward in sackcloth through Elijah the prophet. And then in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 1, Elijah goes again into the presence of King Ahab and he declares, guess what? He declares the word of God again, the faithful witness. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. It's cool, eh? What God has foretold happens. Not that God foreordains it, but rather God foresees it. He sees the working of humanity before humanity has even done it. Now, I'm going to share with you guys a bit of history here because in order to understand the history of France and the French Revolution, we have to understand a bit of history. Now, this is St. Bartholomew's Massacre. Um, Let's back up the truck a little bit. It was in 1572. Protestantism had spread from Martin Luther's Reformation in Germany and it was going forward powerfully in Switzerland, in Geneva, through the writings and the ministry of a man by the name of John Calvin. Has anyone heard of John Calvin? Okay. A very, very smart man. Had some things off, but he was a man of his time. And John Calvin engaged in a lot of missionary endeavours. Martin Luther was a lover. And, and I say that in terms of his theology. He just, he loved God. He just loved him. He wasn't an organiser. John Calvin used to be a lawyer. He was very smart and he was very organised. And he constructed his orthodoxy and his missionary endeavours and Calvinism just spread, just spread extensively, all the way over to the UK. And it was making some massive inroads in France to the point where one-third of the French population were Huguenots. Huguenots are followers of John Calvin. Now, this was a great threat because a lot of the nobles were actually professing Calvinism. And a lot of them were actually separating themselves from the Catholic Church, the mainstream church, and they were worshipping separately. This didn't go well. What happened in Germany, the reason why the Protestant Reformation entrenched itself in Germany is because when Martin Luther was writing, tract after tract after tract, attacking what the church was doing, there was no response or there was no reply from the church. They realised that they messed up. So in France, when Calvin is writing things and his supporters are doing things, they're meeting the rebuttals with even more work and even more literature. But they're finding that even though that happens, something still needs to be done. So there was a a duke who was going to a town called Versailles, I think it was, and he was going there to celebrate Mass. He was a Catholic duke, and he goes there to celebrate Mass, and he's coming to this, this place of worship, or he's going past this place of worship with his soldiers, Conveniently. And it's a barn house that's been converted into a worship centre for Protestants or Huguenots. And he goes in there and he tries to shut it up because it was illegal for the, the Protestants, the Huguenots, to worship outside of the Catholic Church of the day. And there was a bit of a scuffle, as you understand, and somebody threw a rock at the Duke. Now, kids, don't throw rocks, even at people that you don't like. 
They threw a rock at the duke, and the duke didn't like it. So they took them all out, left the, the, the people who started the, the resistance, put them in the barn, and set it on fire and killed 12 people, 12 of the Protestants. A few months elapsed. There's a few civil wars and skirmishes between the Protestants and the Catholics. And then the king realizes, well, I need to do something because this is getting out of hand. If I don't stamp it out, what's going to happen to the kingdom? So one night, he calls in a few of his subjects, a few of his Catholic subjects, and he says, okay, we need to get rid of some of the nobles who are supporters of this, you know, Protestant, the Huguenot Protestants. We need to get rid of them. So there was a number who were selected, and they went out at nighttime, and they killed them in their beds. The people caught a wind of this, and they were going around the street. They all rallied together, and they said, the king wills it, the king wills it. And through the night, through the next three days, thousands of Huguenot Protestants were killed. In the Great Controversy, Ellen White says that 70,000 Huguenots were killed. And even the Catholics who were trying to protect the Huguenots because they realized that it just wasn't right were killed as well. Isn't it crazy? So this is St. Bartholomew's massacre. And from that point, what happened, you know, the, the Pope, I think it was, I can't remember, it was Leo or Gregory, he gave a medallion to everyone who was involved in stamping out this rotten influence of the Protestants, a medallion celebrating it. What had actually happened as a result of this massacre is for every one Protestant killed, ten Protestants turned Catholic because of the fear. Okay? Then you come a hundred years later, there's skirmishes here, there, a bit of history. And then you jump a hundred years later and there's, a, um, there's, a, there's an edict that basically says that Protestants are not legal citizens of the country, which means that their marriages aren't binding, their kids are bastards, and also they don't own any property, nor can they own any property, and they can't even be buried in the cemetery. They have to be thrown in the dump. Do you think this stopped the, the Protestants prophesying in, in sackcloth? the witnesses proclaiming in sackcloth. Do you think that stopped them? No. Look at this. You might not see this very well. This screen's actually better. This is actually a barrel, you know, just a wooden barrel. They converted... They had so many sneaky things the Protestants did. They actually made things that would, you know, go under, the, go under their noses. They wouldn't notice these things. So this was a barrel that would fold up in and on itself. This is actually their pulpit. And they would cart these around on their wagons and they would set them up where they would preach and they would erect it all up and if someone was coming, they'd just fold it all down and sit on the barrel. And here I am, you know, in the, the Desert Museum in France, standing in this pulpit. And you see a picture just here, a painting. That's it just there with, you know, the, the watchers up there making sure that no one's coming to arrest them. The message of God went forward in sackcloth and ashes. They tried to bury the truth, but they just couldn't bury it. But those who were caught were taken and put on the galleys, or they were put in prison. John Knox was actually put on a galley for a number of years. Now, the conditions on these galleys were terrible. They would sit on the seat and they would row. That's where they would sit to work, that's where they would sit to sleep, and that's where they would sit to go to the toilet. Two years. Two years. Most of the time, they didn't make it off the ships. That's how terrible it was. And the Huguenots, the Protestants, that was their reality. You believe in this message and you go to these meetings, you face the consequences. You can see why 10 Protestants turned 
to, to Catholicism for every one that was killed during St. Bartholomew's massacre. So that gives you a bit of history of what's happening in France. Now, back in Revelation chapter 11, verse 1, I want to take you through the rest of this chapter because it continues with the story just here. Revelation 11, verse 7. It says this, when they finish their testimony, in other words, when the scriptures finish their testimony in sackcloth and ashes, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of that great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the people, tribes, tongues and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. The question is, who is this beast that arises out of the bottomless pit? Well, probably the best question is, what is a beast in Bible prophecy? In Daniel chapter 7, there's four beasts. And each beast represents a kingdom or a nation. We have the lion with eagle's wings, which represents... Which represents... Babylon, well done. The bear with three ribs in its mouth and it's raised up on one side represents the dual empire of... Medo-Persia. The leopard with four heads and four wings represents... Greece... And the terrible nondescript beast with iron teeth and originally ten horns represents the empire of Rome. Well done. You're good Adventists. A beast represents a nation. In this prophecy, this beast is a different nation. Look at what Ellen White says in this chapter in Great Controversy. Here is brought to view a new manifestation of satanic power. So if it's a beast that arises from the bottomless pit, it's this nation or political power that rises from the bottomless pit, this political movement. Notice it rises after the testimony of the witness, of the two witnesses. So somewhere towards the end of the 1260 years, around the 1798 period of time, is represented as the great city, Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. In the Bible, there is one city, and the, the answer is on the screen, that is constantly referred to as the great city. Can anyone distinguish which one it is from the screen? Babylon. Remember Nebuchadnezzar walking on the rooftops of his palace, he's just like, oh, look at this great Babylon that I have built. Babylon was exalted. Babylon was ornate. Babylon was rich. Babylon was increased with goods. Archaeologists have actually said in their excavations of Babylon using exaggeration that there was more gold in Babylon than dust. Pretty crazy, eh? When you look at the history of France, because France is actually the manifestation of this new satanic power coming up, the political movement of the revolution. France was a great nation of excess. You only have to go to the palace there. And what the kings, the Louis, were doing here, they were taxing the people, you know, they were bringing them out till they had nothing left so they could live in excess. It was a great, rich kingdom, and even is today. There's also a kingdom noted as Sodom. What is Sodom known for? Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Egypt. 
Moses goes to the Pharaoh, and remember what he says, let my people go. What does Pharaoh say? Who is the Lord that I may let these people? Who I've never heard of him. Denial of God, atheism. These three characteristics, it's exalted, sexually immoral, atheistic. Okay? Notice that Babylon, Sodom, and Egypt were all Israel's enemies. Sodom, to the point it was a spiritual enemy and a perversion of the people, etc., but they were all enemies of Israel. These three things are enemies against God's witness or God's truth. And this is what rises up to quench or to stop or to stamp out God's message of his witnesses. Interesting stuff. And really, when you think about it, isn't this a picture of our world today? Babylon excess. Just the Western world. Does the Western world live in excess? Absolutely. Absolutely. You go to the, you go to the, I was going to say the mall, but that's American. You go to Tweed City. It's a posh place, Tweed City. I know. I, I don't like shopping and, you know, whatever they're called, you know. I don't like going and shopping there because shopping is really boring. But you can get almost anything you want. Even during the church service, if you wanted it. If I recommended a book, you could get on your phone right now. You could find that book. Not that you should do this, by the way. And you could order it. We have everything at the tip of our fingers, don't we? We live in excess. The society that we live in is keeping up with the Joneses, not Phil and Kay, but with the Joneses, you know. We live in a society of excess that I think is even more of an excess than Babylon. But it's all built on debt, isn't it? Interesting. It's another topic for another day. Sodom. Have you read the news lately? Have you seen the... Have you seen the trajectory of society? Have you seen the the calls for tolerance through intolerance, if anyone has a differing opinion? Have you seen the the episode with Margaret Court and how they're wanting to rename Margaret Court Arena because she actually has an opinion? (laughs) Is it any different? And Egypt, well, I don't need to stress on that too much. Atheistic thought permeates society today. This is what happened at the French Revolution. Look at what happens here. It says, The world for the first time heard an assembly of men born and educated in civilization and assuming the right to govern one of the finest of the European nations uplift their united voice to deny the most solemn truth which man's soul receives and renounce unanimously the belief and worship of deity. God did not exist. This is what they said. This is like in the higher echelons of society. This is government pronouncing this. We have individuals who believe this. But governments do not pronounce this. This is what government is pronouncing. God did not exist and that the worship of reason, human reason, was to be substituted in his stead. You want to see the full outgrow of the atheistic thought? Go to Dachau. Go to Auschwitz in Poland. Not that, I'm not saying that atheists or people go to that point, but this is the philosophy acted out. Okay? When Darwin wrote his book, Origin of Species, do you want to know what the end of that is? Origin of Species and the Preservation of Preferred Races. 
Go have a look at it. That's the full title that people don't often want to quote. The preservation of preferred races. And a lot, that, a lot of that which colonial England actually did in colonialising, well, that's not even a word, in inhabiting countries was to wipe out a lot of the people who actually weren't. They actually thought they were doing the work that they should be doing. That certain human beings were, were, were inferior. Interesting stuff. This is what happened in France during the, the 1790s. It says, in November 1793... Atheism reached its zenith with its mockery of the rights of the church. On the 10th of November, the commissioners of the convention dressed up an ass and sacerdotal habit loaded with the symbols of Christianity and tied the Old and New Testament, the two witnesses, see that just there, to its tail. It was then led in mock procession through the town bearing a sacred cup out of which they gave the animal sacramental wine to drink. Arriving at their destination, the crowd piled books of devotion into heaps and burned them in, amid, in ashes amid blasphemous shouts. A prostitute was enthroned as goddess of reason and received adoration by the National Convention and mobs of Paris. Interesting, eh? You know, when I was in Prague in the Czech Republic, we were going through the, the, the streets with a tour guide and someone raised their hand in the group and asked the tour guide of the religion in the Czech Republic. And the question was this. What is the religious, you know, what's the religious belief of the society in the Czech Republic today? Do you know what she said to me? Or said to us? 90% atheist. And the next question was Why? She said, well, let me share with you a bit of history that we all knew. She said there was a man by the name of Jan Hus. You know him? He was one of the early reformers, even before the Reformation started. He preached the truth. He upheld the scriptures. He made it available in the common tongue to the people of Bohemia or the Czech Republic. He was promised a safe passage to Constance. That safe passage was denied. He was captured, put in prison for a year to the point where he was... The place where he was in was just so terrible, his teeth were falling out, and he got so sick that he never recovered from that, he was eventually burnt at the stake. And from that point onwards, there have been a number of religious wars between what Jan Hus had started in Bohemia and the, the Catholics trying to stamp it out. And it was going for about 200 or so years where Jan Hus and what he started, the Hussites, actually had the, 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 the primary religion in the Czech Republic. They just wanted to be left alone. But there was incessant attack after attack after attack. They wouldn't be left alone. And basically they lost out 200 years later. And what she said was this. She said, what has happened to Jan Hus in the name of Christianity has turned people from Christian to atheist in this country even today. In the main square in Prague, there is a statue to Jan Hus, and he's looked at as a hero, but the population aren't Christian. Ellen White says in the Great Controversy, she says, what popery started, atheism finished. Because what happened here, there was a rebellion against the monarchy through the excesses, there was a rebellion against the clergy for their excesses. 
And France was, was basically the, the choir boy for the church during the Dark Ages. If someone, if this group of people needed to be marginalized or kicked out, France was the one that did it better than most. But it got to a point where retribution fell. And those that actually started the revolution actually suffered from the hand of the revolution. But before I go any further, let's jump back to our passage and let's, let's have a look at some things that are said just here. It says, The dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. There's a great persecution. Jump down to verse 9. It says, And those from the people, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and will not allow their dead, to, dead bodies to be put into graves. Three and a half days. Now, let me test you. What does a prophetic day equal? A literal year. Three and a half years, this persecution happens. How about this? When they made their war on religion in November, we read that before in the previous quote, it was three and a half years until they tolerated the scriptures again. There was 20 days over that, but I still think that's pretty cool. Isn't that amazing that this was written like 1700, 1,600 years before it actually happened? And you're trying to tell me that this book isn't inspired? Well, none of you are doing that, but some people say that this isn't inspired. I mean, I don't even know what I'm having for breakfast tomorrow. And God is accurately foretelling specific days and dates when these things would happen. Remarkable. Hence, it's the living word of God. And as they marched through the street with the goddess of reason, a prostitute who was bare-chested, and they, they were crying these words as they brought the Bibles and the Scriptures and anything with religious or Christian connotations and threw it on the pile to be burnt, do you know what they were saying? Crush the wretch, crush the wretch, crush the wretch. Do you know who they were talking about? Jesus. Jesus. That's why it says, where the Lord was crucified crush the wretch. What Jesus, the accusations, the insults hurled at Jesus at his death in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago were being hurled again through the streets of Paris. This is the world that we live in, church, and history repeats itself. And I find actually, I'm almost finished, I find verse 2 very interesting. There was a great rejoicing because of what had happened to the scriptures. Now you find an issue. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, yeah, you know, I used to be a Christian, but, you know, I made a decision not to be a Christian anymore, and I feel free. Have you ever heard that? Like, people say, I'm free now. Really? No, no, no. You're just in darkness now, and you don't know it. You're a slave in darkness, and you just can't see it. I heard that time after time after time. Because we think if we can cast off moral absolutes that we are free. No, 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 no. Your sins will find you out. And throwing off the restraint of Christianity, I mean, you just think about it for a moment. When was it ever a restraint? When was it ever bondage? When was it ever drudgery? The religion of Jesus is the most peaceful, the most pure, and the greatest knowledge that the human can ever have. Jesus says, whom the Son sets free shall be free indeed. You cast off God because you want to be free. No, you are choosing to replace freedom with bondage. It's the reality of it. And Satan attempts to stamp out the truth. He attempts to stamp out the truth. Will you allow him to stamp out the truth in your heart? Verse 11, we find a miracle happens. 
It says, now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, talking about the witnesses. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. This is really cool. And I'm going to close on this. They ascend to heaven in a cloud, glorious, exalted. Remember how we touched on the story of Elijah beforehand? And how Elijah came and he spoke the word and there was a drought. Three and a half years, 1,260 days, there was a drought. And then he speaks the word again and there's rain, the word of God. Was Ahab liked by Jezebel or Ahab? (laughs) Oh, you are the troubler of Israel. Remember that? He wasn't liked, but he was a prophet nonetheless in sackcloth. He was persecuted. He was chased. They never caught him. And at the end of his life, they didn't even have the privilege of killing him. God took him. And he was exalted. Same with the word of God, church. They thought they killed the word of God. But God's word is always triumphant. God's word will always be fulfilled. God's word will always be exalted. And God's word will never return to him void. Just as Elijah went up to heaven in a fiery chariot just after this French Revolution and the suppression and the extermination of scriptures, when the toleration of scripture comes back in again, there is a great religious movement and a spreading of the gospel to the whole globe. And 50 years later, we find the Advent movement is born. Isn't it really cool, church? God's scriptures are never suppressed. They're always uplifted because Jesus is the word of God and he is the embodiment of all that is in this book. The second thing is the breath of the Lord came upon them and revived them. It reminds me of Ezekiel chapter 37 where God says, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. God breathes life into the word. Like I said at the beginning, God's word is not a dead word. When you preach his word, when you speak his word, it's attended with his power, his living power. The Holy Spirit flows. And as God's message was exalted to a place where it would never be brought down again, the Holy Spirit was poured out and is continuing to be poured out. Not that it wasn't in the times of the sackcloth, it was, but in a greater propensity it is today. And a greater propensity it was 100 years ago. With the freedoms that we receive as benefits of Protestantism, that are slowly, actually, no, not slowly, rapidly being eroded away in society today. It's like intolerance through, and no, tolerance through intolerance. You can't speak your mind. You can't have an opinion that's against, and, and many of the things that I'm sharing today, we won't be able to share soon. In some countries, you can't. Canada, for example, you can't share some of these things. I guess the message I want to leave with you that I want you to take forward as you leave this place is this. God's message is to go forward in sackcloth or safety. God has never given us conditions saying, only preach the word of God if you will be successful. God says, no, be faithful. It doesn't matter if you have hordes of people coming to a knowledge. <laughs> Just preach. You look at the story of Elijah. Do you think he got, he got discouraged from time to time? <laughs> I think he was discouraged a lot of the time. You read chapter 19. 
God's message will go forward, regardless of the conditions of society, whether people want it or not. It's to go forward in sackcloth or in safety. God's word must be preached. And we are ambassadors of God's word. And we have a unique sphere of influence in our workplace, in our homes, that only we feel. And God wants to use us for that. The most convenient time is today. Would we rather be a prophet of safety or a prophet of sackcloth? Look at the history of Israel. There was the false prophets who said, peace and safety, peace and safety, peace and safety. And there was just one lone prophet of the Lord. No, that's not what's going to happen. Which ones were received when the judgment fell? We wish we listened to you. The most convenient time to share is that. And I'm not saying we go to the street corner and we say, <laughs> doom and judgment, destruction. No, 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 no. Christ and his love is to be preached absolutely and completely. But there are passages in Scripture that are there for a reason as well. The most convenient time is today. What are we waiting for? Are we resisting because we don't want to be the prophet in sackcloth? Well, someone has to be. Someone has to be. Or is it because we are ashamed what God has given us? Church, when I think of those 70,000 Huguenots who are willing to die for their faith for a result of what they believed, I think of the persecution that will come one day because it will. Not maybe, not if, but when. When? And things that were being preached and shared, you know, 10, 15, 20, 50, 100 years ago, people say, oh, yeah, I can't really see that happening in Australia. It's time to wake up. You know, there is a desire for peace and safety, peace and safety, peace and safety. Well, what if God hasn't called for peace and safety? You know, when I read my Bible... The most terrible events, and I, and I, and I don't say this to, to scare us because our redemption draws near. We are going home, homeward bound church. But does the Bible use strong language when talking about these final events? Mark of the Beast? Why do you think God uses such express language? Do you think he's kidding? Do you think he knows what's going to come? He knows. But he shares and he warns. You know, the ark is being built. The message is being preached. The rains are coming. But God has provided a way of escape. And that's in Jesus Christ our Lord. May we all be ambassadors, witnesses, light shining in our community. Whether we're a prophet of sackcloth or a prophet of ashes, who cares? Be a proclaimer of he who has called you out of great darkness into his marvellous light. I'd like to invite the, the music team to come up as we sing our final song. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you for the promises that you give us in Scripture. That although we know how this ball game, so to speak, is going to end... Your word tells us that you have not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and out of love and of a sound mind. Father, we want to thank you that perfect love casts out all fear. And that, Father, we should be more fearful of forgetting those things that have happened in the past 
and the way that you have led your people and the way that you have led us than being afraid of those things which lie before us. Father, we do not know the future, but we know the one who holds the future in his hands. And Father, it's to him that we submit our lives, our all. And as we sang earlier this morning, take my life and let it be wholly consecrated, Lord, to thee. Father, we surrender ourselves to you today because you first surrendered yourself for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3abn Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3abn Australia Inc., PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support.